Our mission here at our church, maybe you've never noticed it before, but every time you walk out, it's right over your head, written over the doors as you exit. Our mission at Trinity is making disciples for the glory of our God and the good of our community. That's what we exist to do. And I don't think we made that up, although we crafted some of that language. We got that right from Scripture, where Jesus says to his disciples just before he ascends to heaven, as you go or in your going or in every area of your life, make disciples. It's the one command that Jesus gave us. And I hear my friend often say, one day we're going to stand before Jesus and he's going to ask us, what did you do with the one thing I commanded you to do? Make disciples. And so as a church, we're committed. We believe this is our mission, making disciples for the glory of our God and the good of our community. And this series that we're in, in September, Leave Your Nets, is all about discipleship. And so I'm so glad that you are here this morning because what we're doing this morning and next week and the following week is we're gonna go through the way in which our church makes disciples, how we make disciples here at Trinity. And maybe you've noticed in the lobby the large circular, circular graphic on the wall which gives us what we call our C3 journey, which is the idea that we believe at Trinity there's a place for everyone to number one, come and see Jesus, number two, connect and be you, and then number three, commit and lead others. C3, come, connect, and commit. And this morning's message is really about the first step, come and see Jesus, which is where it must start. If you're going to be a disciple of Jesus, you have to have an encounter with Jesus. You have to see Jesus. But the question is, how do you know that your encounter with Jesus is real. How do you know that you've had a real, genuine, life-changing encounter with Jesus? And we're going to look at a story in Luke chapter 17 where 10 men have an encounter with Jesus, but it really only affects one of them in the way that it should. So let's look at Luke chapter 17, verse 11, and it says this, on the way to Jerusalem, he, speaking of Jesus, was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance. They lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priest. It was the priest who could declare that someone was actually clean from leprosy. So that's what Jesus was saying. Go to the priest and let the priest declare you clean. And as they went, they were cleansed. Verse 15, then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. He fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, were not ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And Jesus said to the Samaritan, rise and go your way, your faith has made you well. Three things we learn from this story. If you're going to have a real encounter, or if you've had a real encounter with Jesus, three things that must be true to come and see Jesus. And the first thing is this. You have to realize you have nothing. Realize you bring nothing. Realize you show up with nothing. These ten men were lepers. Leprosy was a death sentence at this time. It was actually worse than a death sentence because not only did you die physically eventually, you died socially immediately. 
you were cut off. This was a terrible, highly contagious disease that was not understood. There was no cure. There was no solution. There was no hope. When you found out that you had leprosy, it was like it was the end of your life. In fact, Jesus sees these 10 lepers at the entrance of a village. And the reason why Jesus would have seen them at the entrance of a village is because the lepers would never have been allowed into the village. It was at the entrance. They, They went as far as they could to try and see Jesus. In fact, in this time, if you were a leper and you were walking around and someone came near you, you had to yell out, unclean, unclean. You had, to, you had to share your worst characteristic right there in front of everybody else. Don't come near me. I'm unclean. And here they are at the entrance of a village with nowhere to go, nowhere to live, isolated, haven't seen their family, haven't hugged someone they love in how many years? But not only that, it was this loss of community. It's interesting because these 10 lepers, there's a, we learn later in the story that there's a Samaritan in the mix. There were some Jewish lepers. There was a Samaritan lepers. Samaritans and Jews never would have hung out. There was so much racial animosity between Jewish people and Samaritans. Jewish people viewed Samaritans as half-breeds. Samaritans hated Jews. They had a history of being not just angry toward each other and hateful toward each other, but physically aggressive and militarily active against each other. And yet here these in these 10 men, they're hanging out, the Jewish leper and the Samaritan leper, and it speaks to the fact that they got no one left. There's no other community. They're forced into this community where they're together. These men had nothing, and they come to Jesus in this story with their hands open, and they're looking for something from Jesus. They say, Jesus, Master, they don't even say heal us. They just say, have mercy And this word mercy here in the Greek just means take pity on us, feel bad for us, have consideration for the condition that we're in. And even though they come to Jesus looking for something, they cannot offer him a reason to help them or a reward if he will help them. They're just throwing themselves upon the mercy of Jesus. And listen, this is how we all must come to Jesus, realizing we have nothing. We have no reason for him to save us. We cannot convince him. We cannot hold up our past performance record as good as it may have been. We cannot flash our talents and our skills and our abilities and our intent and our dreams and our, and our accomplishments. We do not come to Jesus with reasons why he should save us, nor do we give Jesus a reward. If you save me, then I will serve you the rest of my life. That's not a real encounter with Jesus. That's a bargaining moment with Jesus. I remember doing that as a kid. Jesus, if you help me pass this math test. I'll always serve you. If you, make, if you allow me to get to that bathroom on time, I will live for you forever. Just me? No one's ever made pray to prayer like that? This is not a bargaining moment. This is a coming and realizing, I have nothing. If you're bargaining with Jesus, you think you have something. I'll give you something, you give me something. But the truest evidence, or I should say the first evidence that you've had an encounter with Jesus is that you've come realizing that you have nothing. And this is how everyone comes to Jesus. Because you and I, we are not physical, natural, spiritual lepers, but we are spiritual, or sorry, physical or natural lepers, but we are spiritual lepers. There is a spiritual leprosy in our hearts, a sickness that like natural leprosy cannot be cured, highly contagious, 
the sickness in our hearts, we spread into other people's hearts. There's no solution. We have no place to belong. We have no one left to turn to. We have no hope. And we come to Jesus realizing that we have nothing. Now, sometimes we don't think this way. And in a book that I read years ago by a, a, a pastor named Roger Olson, he's actually a professor, he said that sometimes when people think about being saved by Jesus, they think of this example. They think of a man drowning in a pit filled with water who is desperately trying to stay afloat, doing his best to stay alive, crying out for help. Then God all of a sudden hears the earnest cry of this man and he comes to the man in the pit and he has mercy on him and he throws a rope down to this man and the man grabs the rope and as God pulls the rope up, the man climbs himself out and prays God. That's how we've been saved. But that's not it at all. Here's a better example. A man is unconscious, in con unconscious in the bottom of a pit, unaware of his lostness, his predicament, the danger in which he is in. God calls to him. This is called, theologically, the term is prevenient grace. God calls to him, awakening him to his need and his predicament. You and I wouldn't even know how lost we were if it wasn't for God's grace in our lives. Then God fills the pit with water, which causes the man to slowly rise to the top until he is able to be free. All he has to do is not resist the help or the grace that is available to not hold himself down. And he cannot get out of that pit then and pat himself on the back. I screamed so loud and so long that someone finally heard me, and I earned my way out by climbing out. No. I was unconscious, I was unaware, I didn't know how lost I was. This is how we come to Jesus. And my question to you this morning is, have you come to Jesus with nothing? Have you come to him with nothing? Or has your whole life been a series of coming to Jesus with all the things that you think might earn his attention and his affection and secure you a place with him? We don't really like this. Maybe you're feeling a tension in your heart right now. We kind of push back against this idea that we have nothing to offer. I mean, that's not the kindest thing to say to someone. We push back on it because this goes against the way we were told to live. It also goes against the way we want to live. Think about the way that we've been told to live growing up. In every other area of life, it's like you do your best. You put your, you put your best foot forward, right? You got one chance to make a first impression. We're told these things our whole lives. You go into a dinner party in October, you better not show up with empty hands, right? I was taught that. Never go to someone's house empty-handed. Always bring something, right? That's ingrained in us, you know. And so here we come to this gospel message where it says there's nothing that you have to offer. There's nothing that you have to bring. You can't do something, prove something, earn something, buy something. You can simply receive something, and it's not the way we have been told to live, but it also goes against the way we want to live because we really would like to think that there actually is something in us that was worth saving, that we like to think that there was something in me that earned this, that deserves this. Yes, yeah, surely I did something to draw God's attention. Surely I secured God's affection, something in me, right? But you have to realize this morning that if you're going to have a real encounter with Jesus, if you're going to come and see Jesus, you must realize you have nothing. There's a hymn called Not In Me by Sovereign Grace Music. And I love the lyrics of the first two verses because it summarizes so well what I'm trying to say here. Let me read it to you. It'll be on the screens. No list of sins I have not done. No list of virtues I pursue. No list of those I am not like can earn myself a place with you. Oh God, be merciful to me. I am a sinner through and through. 
My only hope of righteousness is not in me, but only you. No list of those. Let's, let's look at the second verse. No humble dress, no fervent prayer, no lifted hands, no tearful song, no recitation of the truth can justify a single wrong. My righteousness is Jesus' life. My debt was paid by Jesus' death. My weary load was borne by him, and he alone can give me rest. We bring nothing. He brings everything. Our performance in our own efforts is useless. The Bible calls our righteousness filthy rags in God's eyes. And yet God looks upon us and he has mercy on us. And we so desperately need to believe this. I don't care how long you follow Jesus. You so desperately need to believe this to be true because otherwise you will swing between pride when you feel like you're performing well. You did your devotionals every day this week. You gave money in the offering. You sang the new song even though you didn't know the words. Like you feel pride in your performance or you'll swing to this side where you'll feel utter crushing despair when you've had a bad week and you've done something that you knew you fell back into a habit that you were trying to break free from. You're doing something that is you know is sin against God. So if you do not believe that you bring nothing to Jesus, then you will swing between pride when you perform well, despair when you mess up. This week on Twitter, I saw this prayer from Tim Keller. He said, Father, my mind knows this doctrine that my salvation and standing with you depends not on my works, but on Christ's works. Yet, this is the prayer, or this is the part that I identified with, yet my heart doesn't fully believe it. And so I go back and forth between pride and self-loathing dependence on my performance. Let my heart fully grasp, as it says in Jonah 2.9, that salvation is from the Lord. Salvation is never from ourselves. It's always and only from the Lord. We bring nothing. We're spiritual lepers. Now, before we move on and get to the next point, There's one other way that this helps us. Remembering this truth helps you when you look at other people in your life who are lost and far from God. There's people in your life, right? Friends, family, coworkers, neighbors who are lost and they're far from God. And the furthest thing from their mind this morning would be gathering in a church and worshiping Jesus and singing the songs that we sang and listening to this message. But this truth will give you both, it will keep you hopeful because it doesn't matter if they seem like they have nothing. That's exactly what they need. To come to Jesus. It will keep you hopeful, but it will also keep you humble because you'll never feel like you're better than them because you realize they're just like me. If they're going to come to Jesus, they're going to have to come to Jesus the way I came, with nothing. There's no such thing as lost causes, and there's no one that I'm better than. That's what this truth means. So we have to realize we have nothing. The second thing that we have to do if we're going to have a real encounter with Jesus is we have to respond with one thing. So realize we have nothing. Secondly, respond with just one thing. In verse 14, Jesus said to them, go and show yourself to the priest. Now, I mentioned this earlier, but the role of the priest was to declare, it was a priest almost had a, a, almost a doctor-type role in the community where they would examine the person who said, I am no longer have leprosy. So they would do a physical examination and then they would either say, no, you're not unclean yet, or sorry, no, yeah, no, you're not unclean yet, or no, you are unclean, or yes, you are clean. And they were supposed to go, and the priest, the priest was the only one that could actually say, you no longer have to live the lifestyle of a leper. 
You can sort of re-immerse yourself into society, into community. And so Jesus says, go and show yourself to the priest. That's all he says to the lepers. And then here's the, here's the amazing part. It says, and as they went, they were healed. They were cleansed. When they started their journey, they still were lepers. And as they went, they were cleansed. Now, something that I find very interesting here, Jesus could have healed them on the spot. He could have said, you're healed, and you're clean, and you're pure. Now that you're clean, and you're pure, and you're healed, go show yourself to the priest. He could do instantaneous miracles and healings in front of you. He did this many times. It's interesting, actually, if you read the Gospels, to note the variety of ways that Jesus healed people. Jesus didn't do it the same way every time. Sometimes he did it from a distance with just a spoken word. He spoke out a word in public. Sometimes he was up close to the person in a private environment, like a private room. One time he used mud from the ground, and he rubbed it in the eyes of a blind man. Sometimes he just spoke the healing word. Sometimes he laid his hands, and he touched people for healing. Sometimes he didn't touch people. People touched him. For healing. Sometimes the healing was instantaneous. On one occasion, it was progressive. He prayed twice for somebody before they received their full healing. And here, it's different than any other time. They begin their journey before they're healed, and as they went, they're healed. And it just kind of reminded me of this truth. This is a little bit of a freebie that Jesus is not a formula, Jesus is a person. Jesus is not a formula. He is a person. And we need to keep that in mind because when you encounter him and when you see other people encounter Jesus, the way someone else comes and see Jesus, sees Jesus may not be the way that you came and saw Jesus. There's different ways that we encounter the same Jesus. Jesus is not a formula that we figure out and we sort of boil him down to uh, a, an equation that if you pray this many minutes and fast this many days and have this much faith, then you will get what you want. Why doesn't that work? Because he's not a formula. He's a person. And as a person, he has his own will. He has his own plans. He has his own purposes. He will not be manipulated. He will not be worked. He will not be used for our personal agendas. He is a person that we will have a relationship with. And he did things differently over and over and over so that we would learn to trust him in every situation. So these lepers had to head to the priest before they were healed. And this speaks of the one thing that we must respond with if we come to Jesus. If you've had an encounter with Jesus, you've had to respond with one thing, and it's the word faith. Faith. It took faith for these men to go. They could have easily said, uh, why would I go to the priest? Look it, I still have the leprosy, Jesus. But at his word, they believed. And they acted in faith, and they began their journey. And sometimes Jesus calls us to step out before we can see where we're headed. He told Abraham in the Old Testament, go and I'll show you where you're going once you get there. Who would like those set of directions? Those are terrible directions. Hold on, what do you mean you'll show me once I get there? How about you show me now so I can control the direction that I'm headed in? This is what we would like. God, show me all the outcomes of my life so that I can head in those directions. And God's saying, I'm just going to go with you. And when you're there, I'll say, this is where I've been leading you all along. And these men, they step out and they respond in faith. And this is true of you and I too. If you're going to have an encounter with Jesus, not only do you have to realize you have nothing, you have to respond with faith. You have to place your faith. Ephesians chapter 2, one of the most important verses in the New Testament, Paul says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. 
It's his grace, but you respond with your faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. What is Paul saying there? What he's saying there is remarkable, that even the faith that we exercise is a gift from God. So before you start to think, hold on, Pastor David, you're contradicting yourself. You just said we have nothing, but now you're saying we actually have to have faith. But the faith that we exercise in the Son of God is a gift from the Father, God gives us the faith to exercise in his son so we can't even boast in the faith that we exercised because it was from him. That's what Paul's saying. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It's not a result of works so that no one may boast. And in Hebrews eleven six, 6, it says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Faith, what is faith? Faith speaks of trust. Placing our trust and faith fully and solely in Jesus who he is, what he did, what he's doing, what he will do, faith. There is a man named Charles Blondin who in the middle of the 19th century became famous for walking a tightrope across Niagara Falls from America to Canada, 160 feet above the falls. He would go several times back and forth in the summer of 1859. And huge crowds would gather. I mean, this is like reality TV before there was reality TV. Everybody gathers to see this happen, and they would just shock and awe and wonder. And one time he crossed in a sack. He's making it harder for himself. Somehow he got bored with walking across a, a tightrope across the uh, Niagara Falls. One time he did it on stilts. This is true, I'm not making it up. Another time on a bicycle, and then once, and this means he is a man after my own heart, he even carried a stove and cooked an omelet as he walked across. Niagara Falls. Gets hungry out there, I guess. On July 15th, he walked backwards across the tightrope to Canada, and then he returned to America, and he was pushing a wheelbarrow. And the story goes that as he came back pushing the wheelbarrow, the crowd was ooing and aahing, and he says, do you, he says to the crowd, do you believe that I can carry a person back across in a wheelbarrow? And of course, the crowd was like, yes, you can do it. We believe in you. You got this. And then he said, who will get in the wheelbarrow? And no one volunteered. (laughs) Faith, real faith, is getting in the wheelbarrow. Faith is not just saying something is true. Faith is living as if it's true. Placing all of your life in what you say To be true. By the way, later in August of that same year, his manager did ride on his back across the fall. So he did find somebody to volunteer. But faith is not just saying, I believe that God can do something, but it's living our lives in alignment with that truth. It's not just saying, I believe that God provides, but it's, it's pushing aside by his grace the worries and the concern and our tendencies to grab hold of things when we're not sure where provision is coming from. It's one thing to say, I believe that God has a plan for my life. It's another thing to trust him with your life. It's one thing to say, I believe that God is is looking out for my children. It's another thing to trust him with your children. Trusting him even when we can't see the outcome. See, faith does not eliminate uncertainty. Rather, what makes faith so necessary and so valuable is the presence of uncertainty If there was certainty, there would be no need for faith. And that's why the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, Paul, we walk by faith and not by sight. If we could see, we wouldn't need faith, but we don't see, so we have faith. Now, let me give you a warning before we get to the last point and finish. Be careful when it comes to responding with faith that instead of 
placing faith in God, you actually are placing faith in your own faith. Some people believe that if they have enough faith, then God will do anything they want them to do. And yet the scriptures teach that we don't always know God's will, his purposes, and his plans. And so placing faith in God is different than placing faith in your faith in God. Does that make sense? Some people have more faith in their faith in God than they do actually in God. And to place faith in God means not only do I believe, it's the, it's the even if faith of the Hebrew boys. I believe that God can deliver me from this fiery furnace, but even if he doesn't, I will not, we will not bow our knees to the wrong God. And there are moments in our lives where we're believing God to show up in a fiery furnace for us. And that's good to have faith in God. But having faith in God also requires us to say, but even if, even if there's a different way he's gonna receive glory and honor through my life and through the situation, my faith is not in my faith. My faith is in God. We are saved not by the quantity, intensity, or sincerity of our faith. We're saved by the object of our faith. Let me say it again. We are not saved by the quantity, intensity, or sincerity of our faith. And should our faith be great? Should it be passionate? And should it be real? Yes, but we're not saved by any of those things. Listen, there are people around this world who have more passionate faith about what they believe in than you. There are people around this world who more sincerely believe. There are people, there are extremists around this world who will give their lives, literally, for what they believe. Does that mean what they believe is true? No. Because we're not saved by the amount of faith we have. We're not saved by how sincerely we hold to something. We're not saved by how intensely we believe something. We are saved by the object of our faith, which means this, that the uh, uh, infinite amount of faith in the wrong thing is worthless, but just the smallest amount of faith in the right thing can save us. Mustard seed faith. The smallest faith in Jesus is worth infinitely more than the greatest faith in anything else in this world. Do not place your faith in your faith. Place your faith in Jesus. We are not saved by the quantity, intensity, or sincerity of our faith, but by the object of our faith. We realize we have nothing. We respond with one thing. And lastly, Pastor Antonia, join me. We return with everything. This is how you know you've had an encounter with Jesus. You realize you have nothing. You show up, throwing yourself upon his mercy. You respond with faith, placing your trust and hope in him. But then you spend the rest of your life returning to him with everything. Everything you are, everything you have. Verse 15, then one of them, when he saw he was healed, he turned back, praising God with a loud voice. Verse 16, he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. That phrase in verse 16, giving him thanks, is the Greek word eucharistio, and it is used 37 times in the New Testament, and every other time, it's directed to God. So when this leper falls on his face, or this, this ex-leper, now healed, falls on his face at Jesus' feet, and when he gives him thanks, what it means to us when, 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 when the author here, Luke, chose to use that verb, what he was telling us was something had changed in that leper, not just physically, but spiritually. He wasn't just coming back to say, thank you, because you're a miracle-working healer. He was saying, thank you, because you are God. He was returning to Jesus and something in his spirit had changed and now he knew that Jesus was not just a good teacher, a good man, a healer, a miracle worker, but Jesus was God. 
And with gratitude, he returns. But only one of them returns. And that's the part of the story that probably bothers us the most. What were the other nine doing? Now, I mean, maybe, you know, if you begin to think, maybe you can be sympathetic to them. They haven't seen their family in forever. They want to get to the priest. Maybe they convince themselves, Jesus said, go to the priest. I'm going to go there first. But something had changed in this man's heart, and he couldn't live life like normal anymore. He had to return. See, these men, maybe they got what they wanted out of Jesus. Maybe they wanted what he could do for them more than they wanted him. Sometimes we're the same. But the Christian life, listen, the Christian life is a life of continually returning to the feet of Jesus, falling on your face and praising him. What does it mean to be a Christian? It means daily you return to the feet of Jesus, you fall on your face and you praise him as God, thanking him that even though you had nothing, he had mercy on you. Even the faith that you exercised in him, he gave to you. And here we are returning with everything. Years ago, my daughter Caroline, it was probably five, six years ago now, I've shared this story before, it was her birthday and um, it was a school morning, but we let her open her presents before school. And I think it was five or, she was turning five or six and we had all these gifts wrapped on the table and we sat down to open the gifts and she, she did something that surprised Aaron and I. She took the first gift and before she unwrapped it, she looked at us and she said, whatever it is, thanks. And then she opened it, and then she did it every present. She did the same thing before she would unwrap it. Whatever it is, thanks. She's so much like her mother. She's nothing like me, but she's every single present. Whatever it is, thanks. Whatever it is, thanks. I walked away thinking, that is the heart of a disciple. Jesus, whatever it is, thanks. Because from that morning on, I bet the lepers thought, whatever comes next, thanks. It's better than it would have ever been. My life has been changed. And for a Christian, whatever tomorrow is, today we say thanks. Whatever this week is, whatever the rest of this year is, whatever is coming our way, we don't know, but we can trust the one who knows. And today and now we can say to Jesus, whatever it is, thanks. Because we've seen your heart. We know your heart. You've called us to come and see you. We come with nothing, we respond with one thing, and we return day after day with everything. Let's pray together.